Hello there, super growers. It's Nate Hammer, producer of Bro Weed at Home with Kyle Cushman. Just gagging Kyle's mic for a minute to bring you something special. A smoking hot offer you won't want to miss, especially if you're a hash enthusiast. We're turning up the dial on your growing ambitions with a fresh, off-the-branch offer just for you. To mark our riveting chit-chat with a true pioneer of the cannabis world, the marvellous Marcus Richardson of Bubble Man's World. We're offering an exclusive 20% off Super Lemon Haze Auto Flower, Feminized and CBD Cannabis Seeds. Why Super Lemon Haze, you ask? Well, it's not just because of its tantalizing citrus tang. This strain has earned its superhero status in the cannabis world for its stupendous hash-making properties. And if you've gotten a whiff of this episode's topic, you'll know we're diving deep into the hashies hassalon. Log on to homegrowncannabisco.com and simply use Super Haze at checkout. That's S-U-P-E-R-H-A-Z-E. Or Z if you're a beefy Brit like me. And take advantage of this supercharged deal. So go ahead, sprout some savings and elevate your cultivation game. So while Kyle's away, I'm sneaking in this zesty offer. Use code SUPERHAZE at homegrowncannabisco.com and enjoy the show. All right, everybody. So today, here we are, as promised, we have a fantastic guest. It's Marcus Bubbleman Richardson. Thanks for coming on, my bubba. Dude, thanks for having me on. I mean, listen, uh, I'll be straight up honest. I reached out to you. Yes, you did. That was an honor. That was such an honor. Maybe I, Matt, did I not like immediately like glow and be like, oh my God, that would be so great. Yes. Well, dude, that's, that's kind of like, uh, it's not the beginning of our story, but it's certainly, I'll never forget the day you got the sort of like, you got to have a show at the Cannabis Cup and High Times was sort of giving you a chance to move into a new field. You know, you were already writing for them and you had done the whole Adam's Garden and all of that awesome stuff. But then it was like, you would you had this opportunity and I remember you were taking it pretty seriously and I was one of your first guests. Yeah, they, they, but you know, they didn't give me like an opportunity. Basically it was like, it was, Okay, you're going to Amsterdam again. You're going to do the same old thing. You know, you're going to do a grow seminar. And I've been there two times before. And I'm like, I want to do something different. And they were like, what? I said, I'm going to put on a show. I'm like, what kind of show? I said, I don't know. I'll come up with something. And so literally, I went and had cards printed like the Jerry Springer, like blue cards that said the grow show on the back. And, uh, and, and, and this is a true story. It's, it's so funny you brought this up because I didn't think of this. I was going to start the show with another story. I showed up in Amsterdam without any plan. I figured I can, uh, you know, I didn't, I forgot how hectic it was. And literally the night before I stayed up with Steve Bloom, we wrote the outline for the show. And the morning of, I woke up early and went to, what's the name of that pancake house that's right in the Domplatz there? The no. Hogan, um, the, the, it's, oh. it's a tourist place, right? And so we sat there and ate, and Cosmo wrote out the chicken scratch of all the notes that I had written for the show that you couldn't read onto my Grow Show cards so that I could actually do the show. And yeah, and that led to uh, a historic uh, controversy, didn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it absolutely did. That was... Uh, it was a whole wild experience the way it actually played out because, of course, you know, it, pl- it played back to Soma. And Soma, who was, we're, you know, friends with both of us at that time, and Soma, you know, was also friends with Mila. And Mila was, of course, not overly excited that I was doing my own 
bags and I was doing it from a different perspective than she chose to do it from. And so I was having some pretty good success. And obviously you doing the article in High Times prior to your grow show um, was a big help. It was a big exposure. I had been already sort of popularized on Overgrow and Cannabis World and CannabisCulture.coms. But high times was like a whole different level. You're like, yeah, I'm going to write an article about you, dude, after we met in, in Switzerland. And I guess instead of getting some photos from me, you were like, I'll get some photos from Soma. And you're like, hey, hook me up with some bubble hash photos. And he gave you some really beautiful ones. But the problem was, was that, you know, and the reason it got taken out on you was that Soma knew to deflect that energy by telling when I was over at his house, he had bubble bags out on his thing, right? He's like, I love these bags. There's more control. There's Instead of just two bags, I can make higher quality resin. But if Mila went over to his house, he would take the bubble bags off the, the little hanger and he'd put isolator bags on. So she was under the full assumption with, you know, and you could, you kind of can't blame her, that those photos were isolator hash, not bubble hash. And that's what she was, that's, that's what she ended up blowing up on you in front, like at your show. Like it was like literally during the filming of your show. Yeah, I literally, I put on a whole show, right? I had, I had the bong babes rolling joints and I told the audience if, if they clapped really loud that they'd throw a lot of joints out into the audience. We're having a good time. Rocker T came on and did a song and closed the show. And it was really, I, I couldn't believe it. It actually was coming on really well. And so I'm out in the audience like Jerry Springer and there's a, there's a time between, between skits where I'm taking questions. I interviewed you and then I'm out there and I'm taking questions and this woman comes up to me and I honestly didn't even know who she was. It wasn't until after the show that somebody told me who that was. And oh. I didn't even know who it was when it was happening. Oh. So we're both, learning, <laughs> we're both learning new things about Sorry. this story. Isn't this great? And so I'm up there just in the show, like really, I mean, like I'm like in another whole world. I'm for the first time I'm putting on a show, like a, a show in front of people. And I'm concerned with, what I'm doing and and I asked she asked the question it was something about do you realize that I made the first bubbled bags and I I didn't know I had no idea and I basically brushed her off and but to finish this in context I actually spoke because I had done a story about you Mila called me at the offices in high times just a couple of weeks before I went to Amsterdam right and she had mentioned to me, she, she brought me up to speed that, you know, I came out with these isolator bags a long time ago and it would be nice if you gave me some, some press too, right? And I made this promise. I said, oh, absolutely, I promise. But I didn't know what she, I'd never seen a picture of her. I didn't, the only thing I talked to her on the telephone. So even after that promise of what I was going to do and, and, and she came up and I had no idea how to handle it. And I was like, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Because I, I didn't even know it was her. So I couldn't even legitimately follow through on the, it was just, it was really funny. And I, I had left. I wasn't even in the room anymore, right? Like after you interviewed me, I bounced. I, I should have stuck around for the uh, for the hilarity to ensue, but uh, I did not. That was fun. I was going to start off the show with uh, Switzerland when we met oh, in yeah. Switzerland. Can you can you remember what year that was? I want to say it was two thousand and one. And the reason I want to say I want to say that because 
Steve, Breeder Steve, myself, and Scott Blakey, i.e. Shanti Baba, who were all in Lugano at the time, uh, had all just had baby daughters born that year. Uh, really all within like uh, 20, 20 days of, of one another. Like his daughter was born on the 31st of March. I know that because that's my birthday. My daughter was born on the 13th of April. And then I, I can't remember which one, Shanti Baba. But so that was kind of this weird sort of coincidence that was occurring. And, and it, of course, it was sort of Steve that brought me out to Switzerland. He was like, you know, come make a bunch of hash. Um, he had owed me some money, too, that I was going to sort of collect on. It made sense. And then, you know, bumping into you guys was just uh, serendipitous. Yeah. And, and no coincidence that was my the first time that I ever saw bubble hash. Do you remember you made a batch and then before we went to dinner, you in your hands, you made a chunk of hash that looked like a little piece of bit of honey. You remember those old candies, bit of honey? And 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 I'd never seen that before. That was that was the very first time and it was fresh. And we weren't going to try it until we let it dry or cure at least some or something. Or, and, and then we came back from dinner and that's when we indulged and, uh, yeah. and went on with a, a very amazing trip to, uh, to Switzerland. That was, nonetheless, it was definitely 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, yeah, it was literally 2001 because our daughters had just been born. Steve uh, wasn't out there really long at all prior to prior to his daughter being born. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a long time ago for sure. And good times, man. That was, uh, that was a super trip. Like Switzerland's an amazing country. It's so small. It's so beautiful. It's like German in the North and Italian in the South. And then you get this whole French quarter that's completely French. It's, uh, it's very unique little country. That's, uh, and from be being from British Columbia, being from the West coast, it's very West coast esque. You know, it's got these just epic mountains and beautiful skiing and snowboarding and creeks and just it's it's beautiful. It's you come you you absolutely, in my opinion, you come from one of the most beautiful parts of the globe, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah there's no the doubt that you've man. stayed there for so long. And so, well, everybody's gotten a little bit of history that we've we've known each other since we were like in our twenties, and. Uh, <laughs> That's almost high school. Yeah, it really is. So let me, let me ask a few questions, actual, be a little interviewer here. So, you know, um, a few questions that maybe people have been following you that, that you haven't been asked. So you're native to British Columbia, correct? You born and raised. I wish. I actually was born north of North Dakota in the Bible Belt of Canada, Winnipeg, Manitoba, right in the center, like the God-forbidden anus of Canada. Oh, <laughs> I love how you said that. Yeah, I did not know that. It probably probably told me that a while back, but that's really interesting. And, and then how old were you when you uh, migrated? I believe I was about 23 years old. So it was your decision. Yeah, we were just like, of course, both my wife and I were like, let's go out there. Let's start a life out there. In fact, how it happened was I had my mentor, Ron Hickey, who's just an absolute savage maniac, 
This is an amazing man who's just will he'll bend over backwards to teach anyone how to grow cannabis. He had one of the first uh, hydroponic stores in Winnipeg, and he taught an enormous amount of people. He developed that 32 pipe system that you've probably seen since the 80s. It the fits round like white pipes, pipes with the black plugs yes, on them? The, yeah, yeah. So he designed that system, the waterfall reservoir, like 25 to 30 years ago. Uh, like unequivocally, that was him. So he did all sorts of wild stuff like that. And he, um, he, I rented a, a house in a fairly affluent part of Manitoba and I was pretty young with his help. And he was like, look, we're going to build you. It had a huge basement. He's like, we're going to go down there and build some false walls and we'll get you like a nice thousand square foot grow down there. And he like had guys come in and build it. It had a secret door to get into under the staircase. <laughs> I love those. And literally dude, this grow was so beautiful. I think it was like 14 lights and uh, like four veg split into a two thirds and a third and it was all wired beautifully and it had the big parabolic, you know, HPS bulbs, Hortolux bulbs. And uh, a week after they finished building it, the landlord called and said, Oh, I just want to have someone to come in and do some, uh... Oh, I can't remember what she called it. It was like some sort of like um, basically where they come in and measure the fucking house. And so the guy's in the basement, he's going like, he's like, dude, a huge section of your basement is missing. And I had to basically get all the lights out of the grow room, put a couple of trees like way in the back with my two iguanas and try to convince this guy, this is my iguana room with the secret door under the staircase that I had to bring him under. So he told the landlord and the landlord was like, yeah, you're evicted. So after we built this incredible room. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Oh, well, this is how I ended up moving to British Columbia. I was so pissed off. I was like, okay, you know what? Fuck this. This is so ridiculous. I'm, you know, it's time for us to go to BC. And so it really was the big push, putting all that time and energy in a, you know, two months of build out into finally just being told, you, you know, it was a beautiful house and it was comfortable and it was off the beaten path. It was just perfect. And so did you, did you, you know, move out? Did, did, did you have contacts or did you just move out into, you know, another country on your own just well another province yeah, see how, i couldn't even well get into canada well been another country it was for, super trippy dude trust me like for all these years here. i've known you i haven't been able to get into canada i i had a i had a company for 10 years that made my that my nutrients that were made in canada and i still couldn't get into canada yeah it's bizarre the whole canadian american relationship with trying to keep each other out you know it is i look I, I look with the way things are now you know, you guys are kind of lucky because you have this awesome border, right? You have, you have the Arctic circle and then you have us. So, you know, it's like, uh, you, we, you can control that. It's like, we got, we got, we got 80. To a degree, but if you look at our country, 90% of the country lives like right at the U S border within like an hour to two hours. All of our cities are like right down there. So if they're, if anything ever goes down that's really serious in America, like we'll be, yeah, of course. Like we'll have to go wait. We'll have, don't get me wrong. We'll have a lot of space to go north, but there's nothing up there. But until but then we, you have healthcare and we don't. Kinda. It's gotten worse and worse here. I won't, I won't get into the politics of the country, but it was, it was the Canada you're thinking about definitely existed like 20 to 25 years ago. And since we got this sort of new prime minister, it's gotten 
a lot different. Yeah, but isn't it relative to how much worse that the U.S. has gotten too? I mean, we're just living in. I feel like I wake up, and I feel like I'm living in a Mel Brooks movie. Like he did Spaceballs, yeah. Part Two, The United States. You know? Yeah, I know. It's wild. It definitely is. I mean, and we're not too far off, to be honest. It's like we're not too far off. We're we're your 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 brothers from the north kind of thing. You know, like when people are like. Canadians always want to like disassociate themselves with Americans, but like the whole thing that makes Canada Canada is that we have you, you guys are a huge influence on every aspect of our culture. It would be like I mean not only that, like you're a, you guys are a huge influence on every aspect of everyone's culture. Nobody exports culture the way the U.S. does. That's interesting, but because because I I the America does United States doesn't really have any culture. We don't have any. Yeah, his, we don't have, have any story you're the storytellers. Culture. You have Hollywood. You're the storytellers. We, and those stories are the culture that we you're have, exporting. We have entertainment and we have Silicon Valley. Yes. That's what we do better yes. or as good as anybody in the world. But we don't have tradition or um, we don't have a holiday that's distinctly the United States that we pat. Well, okay, we do. Let's. Right. I'm going to get off of that. I'm going to ask you. So you're in Canada now. You've been there forever. Yes. And you know what? You know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's hard to deny that um, you've become a luminary in our community. Um, and to me, I'll define that a little bit. You know, it, uh, it, it, a luminary, it, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens by deliberate um, intention. And the intention that you had was to uh, make a mark in this world. And you certainly have with uh, Bubble Hash and uh, Hash Church and Whistler Tech. And, um, you know, I don't know how many other uh, successful companies you've got going on. But I want you to tell me a little bit about that so we can get caught up about the the shop talk. What's going on with... uh, your newest tech these days? Well, all sorts of things in that sense. I mean, I've definitely been working with Whistler Technologies for, you know, building out sort of an industrial commercial equipment that doesn't sacrifice the purity and the quality that's there for the scaling up because generally people are always afraid to scale, especially in the You've already said industry. it all. You've yeah. already said it all because and 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 that and because there's nothing like that here. You you know that, right? So nobody thinks like that. You cannot get anybody with millions of dollars to invest to think like that. So go on, please. Yeah, so we're just uh, you know, pushing the boundaries and the sort of innovating in regards to that equipment. We've got some pretty awesome engineers that are really just like engineers at their core. And they've been getting into hash and cannabis more and more and more over the years as they develop this equipment with the help of, you know, heady hash makers like myself. And we've got a sales guy by the name of Tyler. And one of the engineers, Andrew, is also uh, uh, into the heady culture. So that always helps when you're building this kind of equipment. There's a lot of people doing the equipment on the commercial side now, but they come from manufacturing and fabrication, which is great. You need that side of the puzzle. Uh, but you also need the grower, the hash maker, you know, the guy who's going to be putting the product into these pieces of equipment who will understand the pain points much differently than the person. It's just like anything in cannabis, right? You've got all these sort of 
big money guys that came in and sort of they have this corporate culture uh, and they didn't really respect the people who were from the legacy and vice versa. The legacy people were like, oh, these corporate douchebags. We don't. But if they understood that you need each other to sort of operate in that corporate landscape, but still bring in that actual culture of the grower, hash maker, the heady culture, you always need those two. I've always said it like both sides always think that they're kind of the best, kind of like uh, Mick Jagger and uh, Keith Richards, but really alone, they suck balls. But when you put them together and you create that third little entity in the middle, the, the rolling stones, that's the, that's the magic, right? Where you can create that synergy. So, and it isn't um, even just the ideas. It has to be the right people, right? Because I've gotten in and out of, you know, you got to have the right people at the right time in their lives. Everybody's got to have right. the right amount of ego, the right amount of self-confidence, but the right amount of lack of ego too, right? <laughs> Totally, man. It's not an easy. It's literally like like winning a lottery if you can if you can nail it. But uh, it's what entrepreneurs love, and it's fun. And I'm having fun with the company. I was, uh, you know, pretty exclusive for the last five years. My contract with them just just ended. My exclusive contract. So now I'm able in my consulting, which I'm doing a lot of these days, able to access different calibers of equipment because there's no doubt about it that Whistler Technology is at the very very top. Beautiful. I've seen it. I, I, I've looked, I've studied it as much as you can, you know, online and stuff and absolutely beautiful. And yeah, uh, it's completely like, it's really for EU GMP and GPP, like be more so than like uh, trap labs. Not that I don't have utter and complete respect for trap labs, but you don't need to over-engineer the equipment to that level for that kind of lab if you're not you know highly regulated so this equipment is highly regulated the way it's designed is for highly regulated markets i dare say that you have not smoked any particulate matter in 30 years it's been <laughs> at least 24 to 25 you're not wrong in that sense <laughs> that I, means uh, leaf for it. you neophytes out there that, that, that basically means leaf leaf or stem or or uh, uh cellulose or I'm not, I'm not going to go on because I'm not that smart. But you're not wrong. <laughs> Thank you. So, man, um, so... In fact, uh, let me say one thing on that point before sure. you go on. I would love to design in my brand. I have the Bubble Man brand and it's operational in some states. I would love to create the product where I do an extract and it's in the jar. And then I take the flower that I extracted it from... And I dry that out and I create cardboard boxes out of it. <laughs> the resin itself goes into the bud made box, which is basically cellulose and fiber, which is exactly what cardboard is, cellulose and fiber. So f flour isn't too far off. It, it would be very easy to turn buds into a cardboard box. Is this, is this the first time you've spit that? that that little idea or have because manifestation i believe in wholeheartedly so i'm already yeah. i already think you're going to have it done somehow yeah i've mentioned it just a few times to sort of friends in passing i don't think i've ever mentioned it on a podcast or anything so this will be the uh this will be the test i think it would just be amazing to get that tech down take all your dried your wet flour and dry it out and get it pressed and card flipped and cart printed on like how sick would that be? If you probably up? could manage to get a little scratch and sniff on the back too. It's basically like <laughs> resin deconstructed. That's awesome, man. Um, so, you know, um, 
I got a, you know, I do have a few questions here that I did want to make sure because I want this to be informative to people, not just entertaining. I think I'm having a great time. Usually, if I'm having a good time, then everybody else is too. So, since we're on the 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 subject of bubble hash, um, you know, usually I ask like people, "What's give me a couple of tips on you know growing at home?" What I want you to do is give me a couple of pieces of advice for, you know, uh, home bubblers, we'll call them. Home bubblers. Well, I will say this, you know, everyone like How deep has do you have own... to get, right? Because I know, you know, you can get freezers for this. You can work in a freeze room. You can get really, really deep. But we're going we're gonna to lay it out here for the home guy. A couple of tips that are, above all, going to improve his general work. Well, I mean, number one tip is that the bags are the word of God when it comes to the quality of your resin. And although cognitive dissonance will allow you to delude yourself into thinking you have better quality flour than you may have, and we've all been subject to that, me included, um, the resin will not allow that. It's very difficult for the resin to allow that. So, And what I mean by that is they're, they're the word of God. When you, Countless people, when I release these bags, would message me and say, hey, how do I get my hash to melt like yours is melting? And I'm like, ooh, no, that's not actually a technique in the hash making. That is actually something to do with A, the caliber of genetics that you're running. So that basically means what are the gene syntheses that are present in those in that genetic code and which one gene synthase. So that's like, you know, if you have a TH or a CBDA gene synthase that plant can produce CBDA. If it doesn't have the gene synthase in its genetic code, it's, it's unable to, to produce that. So this is where breeders will figure out what's present in a plant, even if it's not dominant, and then they can be like, oh, this thing has some, it has the THCVA gene synthase. We can use that as breeding stock to bump those numbers up, and then I won't get into, you know, breeding. Is that what we would just call dumpers? <laughs> Well, I mean, if if they were the gene synthases of of resin, and they they could be dumpers, and then if they were also the gene synthases of volatile organic compounds, they could also be like super flavorful and tasty dumpers, right? It all depends on what gene synthases are present, and so that's the genetics, right? What genetics are there? Then it comes down to: Are you able to create an environment? that allows that plant to sequester the components that it requires, when it requires, where it requires, and how it requires, you know, which I'm always, you know, when people say, what's the, what, what's the best way to get great resin? I'm a big proponent of living soils. It doesn't mean it's the only way. And I've smoked incredible material resins from non-living soils that have, that have blown me away completely. So I'm not saying it's the be all end all. I'm saying that, the intelligence that the fungi has, the mycorrhizosphere that is coding your root system in a living soil uh, environment, is an intelligence that we cannot quite understand. It has a direct link of communication with the plant where it's like, I need some of this, boom, it gets it, it sequesters it, it prepares it, and then it delivers it right to where it needs to be in a way that, I mean, sure, there's probably some PhDs out there that are very intelligent and have somewhat of an understanding but I can almost unequivocally say that until we have like some super level of sentient AI singularity type shit, um, nothing is going to be stronger or smarter. Okay, than so I'm going to take you forward. So we, we've got the material, okay? 
and give us a give me a little bit in the technique of how to handle it that's what people need to know well i mean i like hashtag never touched as a macro photographer i prefer that the plants don't get touched i don't want people rubbing up against them with t-shirts or hoodies because then these big fibers stick in there um, it's the same from the hash perspective when i start m macro photographing resin and i see when there's buds just leaning over that people are brushing as they walk by and i get under my ret my my macroscope and i realize the resin glands have been torn off they've been stretched and pulled and contaminated and i'm like oh don't do that so i like never touched i love i i i don't mind running dry material or fresh frozen um, the best of the best materials, even dried out, will produce incredible quality hashes. Now, the fresh frozen pathway really became a thing for people to have more of a chance of acquiring full melt. So whereas old school growers like yourself and people that we know have been curing these monoterpenes, these very caustic, rough sort of terpenes out of the plant, that's what that's why we cure flour. We get rid of that harsh stuff. Well, in the world of fresh frozen, both BHO and wet wash, we're trapping all of those monoterpenes. Now, as you raise the terpene profile percentage, you increase the likeliness of a, of a shimmering, melty glow as you hit that hash. That's not necessarily the same thing as a perfectly grown resin gland that will melt into a liquid and boil upon heat going near it those are those are I'm different picking things. up so what you're laying down i i am picking up what you're laying down well, there's, there's even another way so not only will they use fresh frozen for that they'll then take the hash afterwards and this is you know with with water hash even for home guys listen the recipe is super simple if you follow the very simple recipe of mixing and settling and pulling you end up getting what is there very effectively the only very difficult part that enjoy, involves subtle nuances is the drying of the hash. That's the trick. That's the trick. Drying it. No, I have I have questions before then. So, so step one is dry your flour and cure it with the, with the, with the sugar want. leaf with, with the sugar leaf on it, right? Whole plant, dry it and cure it, and then. And so you're going to dry it, you're going to buck it down, you're going to put it in containers and cure it the way an expert or, or the way the best, but, and that would be the, before you would prefer, taking away all the other perfections and imperfections, you're in your home, you grow it in your closet, you grew a really great batch, you're going to dry it slowly, you're going to buck, and you're not going to, you're going to leave all the sugar leaf on it, and then you're going to buck it down, and you're going to cure it. Is, is this what I'm taking from you? Well, this is what you're taking from you, but the guy next to you could have said, so what you're saying is you want me to cut it down all fresh, freeze it, flash freeze it, and then run it fresh. What I would suggest is both to find out what you like. And you'll see that the old school guys prefer the cured resin. And the younger guys, they're more now like addicted to that. Uh, 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 just that okay. crazy grab by the neck. So good answer. Fresh is what's most popular right now. Good answer. So now, okay, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to hang it whole and I'm going to put it into jars and I'm going to cure it for a couple of weeks. And then I'm going to trim those. I'm going to put them in jars loosely. And then I'm going to trim off all the sugar. And that's what I'm going to make. No, wait, there's no trimming anymore. We're using the whole buds. 
So you're going to clean that off of all the stem, correct? You're going to really break it down small. Now that you got cured buds. And this is where I'm going to start my process. Okay, anybody can do this at home. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't broken anything, made anything too heady, right? Like that, that is non-understanding. So am, am, am I, is, this, is this a good, am I, am I, am I am you with me so far? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now, so now I got my, my five or my 10 or my 20 gallon bubble bags. And of course you don't want to use tap water because water is a source of contaminants. Correct. It absolutely can be. Now keep in mind from the perspective of the home user, it's not the end of the world, you know, from the perspective of the commercial uh, producer, well, no. there's regulations to follow, and you want to just make sure no, your product. But I'm clean. if you if you follow me, I'm just following a simple path. I'm still a simple man. I'm domesticated. Mm-hmm. I don't have a factory. I don't have a grow room. I have a grow tent. So it's real simple for me. So I'm just bringing it along at a real simple pace, but from the man who's done it all. So so now we got our we got our bubble bags, and so. I'm going to use either filtered water or I'm going to go out and buy some purified water. I mean, that's worth the money, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not too difficult to do for sure. Okay. Same thing with the ice, right? So, you know, I've exactly, so So I I found with the water that you got. Exactly. Back in the day, I started buying clean ice, but what you couldn't just buy it anywhere. You wanted to buy filtered clean ice. So now you've got clean water. Most ice. What's that? Do you know what's in most ice? Water. Fluoride. Fluoride. Water water is in all ice exclusively. (laughs) Fluoride is only in some ice. But yeah, you buy it and you're like, why the fuck are these motherfuckers putting fluoride in this? This is not even sensible. And they don't even have to list it. Yeah, it's often listed though. Okay, so look, I'm just hammering the basics really quick. So... You got your material, that's how you do it. You got clean water, clean ice. And so now to me, the next important step is cold water. You gotta be patient in between the steps, right? You gotta, you gotta be patient in between the steps. You, you gotta put the ice in the water and let it sit for a certain amount of time. You gotta be patient. In case you missed it earlier, we're celebrating our captivating conversation with the legendary Marcus Richardson of Bubbleman's World. If you're a hash enthusiast, you're in for a treat. To honor this episode's focus, we're hooking you up with an incredible 20% off our Super Lemon Haze Auto Flower, Feminized, and CBD Cannabis Seeds. Now, I know you might be missing Kyle's soothing voice right about now, but fear not. Yours truly is here to keep the growing party going and spice things up a bit. So go on and grab your gardening gloves, because with code SUPERHAZE, you'll be saving big and cultivating like a true master. All right, fellow Green Thumbs, let's get back to the fascinating world of hash making with Marcus Richardson. Stay tuned, stay growing, and make sure to take advantage of our super haze offer before it goes up in smoke. Happy growing. You're not wrong. Um, This is one of the things that the fresh frozen people will say. When you freeze the flour, putting the flour into the water allows you to use less ice because the flour is so cold, it reduces the heat of the water. You're just proving it's all about expedience and or uh, expense. What I'm talking about is simple and pragmatic. So, so, uh, um, So again, Bubble Man says I'm not wrong. So you're gonna sit and you're gonna wait 
good 10, 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. Be patient to get your water as cold, nearly as cold as the ice, right? Before you take your material out of the freezer and put it into the bucket. Well, also there's a second part to that that you want to pay attention to, which is even the more important part, which is, first of all, you want the temperature to be basically, you know, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius. Um, you want to make sure that when you're putting dry material in, that you allow it to absorb water. And that's going to take at least 15 minutes because if you just start mixing some bone dry material that goes in there, it'll start breaking off pieces of contaminants. And the, the magic of water hash is that everything floats in the water while the resin glands, which are still affected by gravity uh, due to their density, they sink in the water. And that's why the whole process works. Um, if you break the material up too small and it loses its surface area size, there's a, a threshold where small particulate will, will, will sink. Yes. See, I'm bringing them, I'm bringing you down to the really, the really silly, small granular stuff. Yeah. And that, that was the next thing I was going to say is after patience for allowing the water to get cold, then when you do introduce the material to the water, you need patience again, correct? Because you have to let the material not only get saturated, but you want to make sure the material now comes down in temperature to the same temperature as the water before you start mixing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's fun. It's like you can geek out on this when you're at home. I mean, really, the, the, the process is fairly simple. I know it's scary, especially for people that have never done it before, to just put you know water and ice over their flowers or their trim. But um, when you see what comes out, you'll just never look back. It's just this beautiful, sandy material. You can press it. The whole rosin world, we haven't even really gotten into that. But that's, that's huge. You know, when I first released bubble bags, all those people that ask me, hey, how do you uh, get my hash to melt like yours? And, you know, when you hear the answer, it's like, well, you have two options. You can go down a 20-year rabbit hole and learn about the symbiotic relationships of plants and mycorrhizospheres and all of the things that they require when they require them and how they require them. You can learn about light spectrums. You can learn about greenhouses and literally like a multi-decade pathway or... You could just jam that weed into a PVC pipe and get a can of butane and just like blast that shit into a golden honey and it'll dab perfectly. And so unfortunately, 98% of people took that pathway and I was scared for those people because a lot of them blew up and burnt themselves and whatnot. So when I saw rosin come out, I saw that it was the same, same, like most people's rosin is made from mediocre bubble. Like if you get full melt bubble, there's almost no reason to press it into rosin because you're going to get like a 95% return. Or mediocre weed. You're pressing mediocre yeah, weed. Well, that's it. You know, like I don't know too many people that do flower rosin anymore, but I know that a lot of the live hash rosin, it's very little of it is made from the most exceptional hash. And that's why the people who have it will never have the hash that they pressed the rosin from and if the rosin can look triple a but if you know it was pressed into rosin it the hash probably wasn't uh i'm not saying there's not anomalies but um i just i love the fact that rosin exists and now instead of people you know like imagine being a young guy in high school and just like, buying like a little bag of weed and with a hair straightener you could access dabs like solventless dabs that you could just drop into a little like that is huge man 
It is. You, you, you can carry around a little thing in your pocket now. They actually work. That'll tell you the potency of the weed. You know, you can bring it. You know, it, it, it's really amazing. And, 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 and Bubs, may I call you because we're old friends. Bubs, you, 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 um, you exist at a level of cannabis um, production and consumption that all of us, I don't know how to liken it to anything else um, without demeaning it because, you know, I have, I do have an ultimate respect for cannabis and it, it's really unlike anything else more than it's like. And what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the discussions are, um, they're very heady. And uh, uh, I, I admire how far you've taken something that, like you said, you know, you just, you know, even before pressing and resin, you know, you just, what was the old, uh, uh, you know, if it don't, if it don't, it ain't worth the trouble if it don't bubble. If it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And that was, listen, that was Rob Clark, who I first ever heard that from. And that's literally how I met Skunkman Sam, by using that logo. I got to give props to Sam because it really was Sam's sort of quote that he had said. Well, it was pre the wizard. That was my guy, right? The bubble bag guy. But so when I started the bubble bag company, because Hillary Black had introduced me to Rob Clark, I had met him in 95 at the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, maybe 98 too. But I bumped into him. I don't know if you remember that Thai food restaurant behind uh, Aryan's greenhouse off the dam rack. It was all like the Katoy waitresses. Like it was all, it was all lady boys who were the waitress. It was hard to forget this place because it was pretty trippy back then. Um, but they allowed you to puff. They were super open-minded. So I remember walking up the stairs to get into that place. And it was like John Conroy was there. And Rob Clark had the Ruhr. And he laid me out with a, a hit of the most spectacular bubbly hash and he he looked me right in the eye he lit it and then he looked at me and he said if it don't bubble it ain't worth the trouble and i was just like that stuck with me for the rest of the cup you know i was like i'll tell you you got to give amsterdam and high times a mad shout out because uh that really was the birth of of our i mean listen of course this has been going on for a thousand plus years and there's been people that have been involved in the prohibition and the fight for you know cannabis versus evil for a long long time but for our scene that whole cannabis cup uh you know 1989 to whatever it went till was really profound everybody everybody that anybody thinks of as a founder or a trailblazer in our community was on the cover of high times you know dennis perone jack herrer um arian uh, uh uh help me out you know i mean everybody uh, all of them um uh, keith straup um uh you know uh tommy chong and <laughs> jack. jack and so yeah without a doubt and come on there's no way i would be sitting here talking to you because Kyle wouldn't have been invented and I never would have gotten sent to Switzerland. And, uh, you know, and, you know, it, it really is uh, worth a shout back to uh, all those people. And I still keep in touch. You know, like I said, I spoke to Andre this morning who wished That's you awesome. well. And, um, and you remember yeah. when we raced up the mountain to try and get the sun to raise so Andre could get the picture of my wife for the cover of yes. uh, High Times Magazine? 
Yes, I do. On on the top of uh, over over across the river from uh, Italy. Yeah, yeah, Campione, exactly. It was Lago yes. Lugano. Yes, I do remember how frantic he had to get this picture. Yes, it was it was great. Yeah. I just remember the sun was going down, and then we were driving around this mountain so fast that the sun was going up. Tell me, you still have that picture? I don't know if I ever got that picture, to be honest. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to see if Andre still has that 2001. Uh, yeah. Lugano, I'll have photo. to ask him. So what else we got here? I mean, you know, uh, uh, everybody, not ev most people know about Hash Church that you brought back after a hiatus. And now you're, yeah. I don't know, you got, you got a, how many hundred episodes have you done of Hash Church? Oh, geez, I don't know. It's been a while since I did one, but they're always just right there now. I've done so many. I will say that it was 167 without a break, without missing in like seven or eight different countries. Like I just never missed if it was a 9 a.m. on Sunday, West Coast time, I made it. I mean, I traveled through a blizzard in Brampton, Ontario with two Rastafarians after landing from Kingston, Jamaica, while they were driving in the blizzard to get me to this house so I could turn on and, and make the 9 a.m. hash church, um, you know, host. It was absolutely mental. I don't know what was driving me, to be honest. Um, but I still do it now and then, and I've got some good friends that I would like to bring forward. I, I forget about the importance of that conversation and that it wasn't, it wasn't a business. It wasn't, um, to compete with anything. It was something that was standalone on its, on its own. We never took sponsors. We never, you know, we, we never monetized the, the, the content because I was afraid, um, that it would affect the integrity of the content and, so we just never monetized it. But, oh, man, did I turn down a lot of sponsorship offers for Ash. You know, even though, you know, we are obviously, I'm here because of Homegrown. And I've been working with Homegrown Cannabis Co. now for eight years, eight plus years. And, um, but uh, I just think it's all about perspective. And I just try to bring on people that have unique perspectives. You know, something that has to do with cannabis, of course you know, or, or, or our community. And, and then we just chit chat and, uh, you know, um, sometimes people have products that they like to talk about, you know, companies that they've made, they're entrepreneurs and sometimes they're not. Um, but like you said, it's, it's, it's unfiltered as far as, um, nobody's brought on for the sole re for, for the main reason of presenting a product. And I'm, I'm coming around a lot more. I mean, listen, you remember my party back in the day, Legends of Hashish. That was very much the same thing. I refused to monetize it. I gave away any money that we made from ticket sales over the cost of throwing the party. I would give it to like the Cannabis College or the Cannabis Compassion Club in Amsterdam or whoever was wherever the country was we were throwing it. We would donate that money away. I was somehow like, oh, I just can't monetize this. Legends was always about celebrating hash not talking business, not, not like, you know, promoting oneself or one's products. And now, because it's, it's a different world, you know, back then we had smugglers and people that were under the, the radar of Johnny Law that didn't want to be photographed. So there was no cameras, you know, now let's, yeah, now it's like there's multiple film crews filming everything, recording everything. Like there's, drone shots there's you know full sponsorships there's so i can't it's, keep it's up like the young guys you know that's that's you know you know 
the young guys don't need me to teach them how to grow anymore. There's so many good growers out there, man. And certainly I can't, I can't keep up on my Instagram with all the production value everybody's got, learning how to press the buttons and make it look like they have all these videographers. But it's about perspective. And unique perspectives are still valuable. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's why we're here. And I'm enjoying this little chat with you. And, you know, I really hope that someday the last time we saw each other was in Jamaica at my wedding, where you ended up in the bar after hours, where I decided to have my after hours party. You didn't even know. And we just we partied for three, four, multiple hours together. And uh, I smoked. a. That was the last time that I smoked any quantity of really good, good hash. Was that like 2014? That was 2014. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that okay, was when we got married. Yeah, that's the year. That was the year my son was born. So we had a baby with us that year. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I yeah, think my man. buddy Kimbo. I think my buddy Kimbo invited us all onto his big 51 foot yacht, and we had like yes. a, a, a party. Yeah. Yeah. So Kimbo yeah, yeah, just passed great. away. We'll pour a little oh, out for Kimbo. He just died oh, of cancer recently. But he's a, he was a great dude, man. And yeah, he just. He just offered that. He's like, hey, if you want to bring any of your friends on my boat, man, like just put the invite out. So I remember, you know, you and Susie were there and Ramo and Sandra were there and my both my sons, my my older son, who was around 11 or 12 then and my youngest son, who was like two months old. They were both there. Yeah, life. I that was a great trip. And um, man, I just. I, I keep thinking how I can find a way to uh, to bring us together again for a uh, uh, a reunion. Who knows how that'll happen? Um, it's a must. So I would enjoy that a great deal. I would. I would as well. Um, you know, uh, I have a I have a I have a well worded question here. I think's worth asking. It says, as a respected figure in the cannabis community. What industry issues or trends do you feel are important for us to address or discuss? What's on your mind? Well, I guess, you know, right off the bat, the industry is happening in a lot of different places simultaneously. So I guess I could speak to both kind of Canada and the U.S. Obviously, the big issue in the, in the U.S. is that it's not fair to brands and companies to have to operate in every single state uh, when, with the amount of states that are allowing cannabis now, at this point, federal law should pretty much kick in so that, uh, you know, the U.S. can can export their product around the world. Potentially, I would love to see the U.S. hopscotch right to the top of the game again by literally allowing the importation of hash from other countries and flour from other countries to bring that sort of old school vibe back, but also to create their own federal you know, but not overregulated like the Canadian one, but created something where it's like, you know, kind of between where we're at and where we came from. Because I know a lot of people think it's the old days were the dream days, but that was monetizing prohibition. The, the money was based on people doing jail time and there's a karmic debt that comes with that. And that's why you always saw these amazing, like just kind, beautiful families growers like just awesome people getting robbed and then getting busted and then getting just like one thing after another there's always this sort of karmic debt what do you think about selling what, what do you think about um 
you know, the, uh, the, the psychedelic community, more specific, like the, the, the psilocybin, the mushroom, mushroom community is trying to approach it um, where uh, they've learned from cannabis and, you know, they don't want uh, uh, decriminalization or, or anything like that. I mean, do you, do you see anything positive in, in that? Com- do, you, do you have any uh, reach or friends in that community? Oh, absolutely. I was just with actually Dennis McKenna uh, in uh, Vancouver. I was with my youngest son and I bumped into Dennis at um, this mushroom event. I think it was like the 43rd annual Van Dusen mushroom uh, event, which was just spectacular. And they did he, they did a whole talk on psychedelic mushrooms. And so at the core, at least of the psychedelic mushroom community, it's... Um, it's always been an incredible core of people. And I've been going to those sort of psychedelic gatherings for 20 plus years where you could go and meet, you know, Ralph Metzner and Jonathan Ott and Paul Stamets and, and Terrence and sort of all of these guys that were writing these books about these, these compounds back in the day. That's sort of my psychedelic community. You know, now there's a newer group that will expand. I always do welcome the newer group and focus on the good of that, but also realize that there will be some wolves in sheep's clothing uh, that make their way into the psychedelic community, as they always have. You know, even if you look at rainbow gatherings, uh, there's always been these sort of do you think, small percentage. Seeing as you, you you are kind of plugged in, you know, to the that kind of, do you think that there is any chance you know, specifically in the States here, that there'll be a um, uh, a recollection of the experiences and the, the actual relative danger as opposed to the benefits and that legalization will look more like, you know, it should or is it going to get wound up in something red bureaucratic? Do, is there a chance that they're going to find a different route? I mean, I surely hope so. I always have faith. You know, keep in mind, it's always the people fucking this shit up, not the plant medicines themselves. They're good to go. Um, It's the people who think that they know what's best. If we just listen to these plants and, you know, I'm not, for instance, I'm not against there being some regulations for producing a medicine like cannabis. I, I think it's fine to have regulations. Now, don't make them insane and impossible. But definitely like have levels that you won't accept for heavy metals and pesticides and anything like that. Molds, yeast, mildews, like these are important things to know what the what the potency of the product is. Can't sell to children, can't have a dispenser on the corner behind a school, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, there's some crazy ones in Canada where you couldn't even see inside. They made you cover up the windows, which made it very dangerous for the people who worked there, for people that would want to go in and rob the place, because you could just go in, lock the door, and then be like, rob the place, and no one from outside could see you. You So that was just changed. You made me think of something. Do you think that, uh, uh, do you think it would make a big difference if the the people who are trying to legalize mushrooms for personal use, if we simply separated any type of commercial activity from first just legalizing it for personal use without any restrictions. In other words, you hurt somebody, you, you, then you, there are laws if you hurt somebody. Generally, you're allowed to hurt yourself. If you're at home and you chop your finger off, you don't get charged with mutilating another person. You did it by accident, you chopped your finger off. So, you know what I'm saying? Do you, 
I mean, do you think that will that, that that would be a good idea to just simply try to legalize without the idea of giving well, anybody it, the right? Listen, in a sense, it is. So that's where mushrooms are, at least here. They're, you know, it's only in, once you dry them that it somehow becomes an issue. And I wouldn't say there's a police force in British Columbia actively enforcing. Is that your distinction you know, that you've come up with? No, no. Here in Canada, they're 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 illegal once they're dried, and I guess it's because when they're fresh, they're so diluted of their drug compound that it's it's just I don't know what the numbers are, but it might even be that way in some of the states. I don't know. But That's it's pretty definitely silly. that way. In Canada. I, I understand it. it's it. pretty silly, but it's kind of I like pick the- them every year. I, I picked a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms this year: cyanessens and ailes, and maybe some stunzies. I think the big ones out here in LA, which are like replacing all the housewives' uh, antidepressants, are uh, albino avery. Yeah, so those are potent Stropharia cubensis cultivar. And everybody's doing them in gummies and microdosing, and I do, I do now and then. You know, I even I, I, I tried to find out if it would be a good thing for me to do on a regular, and I, you know, without uh, stereotyping it or without even putting in a negative, I just, I couldn't find a regular dose for me that was helpful. There was always some kind of a come down. So it's a regular, it's, it's an irregular use thing for me. How much were you like, cause generally a microdose of psilocybin, you shouldn't even feel it. It's so subtle. Sure. Sure. But, uh, what I found was that after, you know, if I even got up to 150 mics, that at the end of that day, it was still, there was still some kind of a come down and that's my own physiology. And so you were feeling it. I couldn't find a neutrality where I only got that, you know, where you take it and you forget you took it. And three, four hours later, that's why I had such a good time. That's what it was. That's a great thing that I would love to be able to do and take every day. It really depends on your definition of the microdose because there, there are definitely different, definitions of microdose and some people they'll be like oh i take like a third of a gram or a half a gram i'm like whoa that's like really like to like what i talk about as a microdose is an is a true microdose it's such a small amount there's no psychedelic effect to it it doesn't affect like your appetite or your it's just this super super slight nudging of your overall being and how you feel and it's very subtle uh, that's how I like it myself, which is very, very, very small amounts. Um, I don't have a way to test my psilocybin, so I don't know exactly what I'm taking. But I know with the dry mushroom that if I eat like a stem, and they're very thin stems, a little thicker than semolin ciatas. These are the wavy caps, the cyanescens. Um, one small little stem is a perfect microdose where maybe I might feel something for five minutes. Like a little bit like, oh, I feel like I took a dab or something, uh, but it'll just dissipate in five minutes. I like to keep it below the threshold of feeling it, and then I can do it every day. And after like 20 or 30 days of that, it's, uh, it's a, it builds up the effects of how good you feel. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm so glad we got into that. It's a, it's crushing depression. Actually, it's an important um, thing nowadays for just people to have options other than going to the to the doctor. Of course, you yeah, know, man, absolutely, and, and particularly the psychiatric and mental health problems. Those types of medicines are, you know, SSRIs and whatnot. They're fairly harsh. 
So to at least have something else on the table, I'm not saying that every single person shouldn't take those drugs because maybe some people get helped by them, but there's a lot of people that don't. And when you take a drug for depression or suicidal ideations and the top um, side effect is may cause suicidal ideation, that does not line up to me. That's insane. No, and they, and they, they can get away with saying it right on the television. You listen, you're not paying attention. The TV's running in the background and you hear, may cause death. <laughs> I know. What kind of side effect is oh, that? So, That's but, a seriously hard side effect, actually. Because, but because they lift, listed it, it, they're no longer liable, and America runs on liability, so that's all you got to worry about. God bless America. God bless America. We love it here, you know. So uh, other than us uh, getting together, we talked about the, the bubble hash, and we talked about how we met, and we talked about how much we want to see each other again, and uh, we gave respect to the old days of high times, and I think before we... Before we signed on, we, we gave a little respect to some of our missing soldiers, you know. We miss, uh, we're not going to name, we can't name everybody, but we, we miss, we miss Frenchie and we miss Subcool and we miss Eddie, Franco, Franco and Jack and yeah, all these people, you know, that uh, were taken from us and, but we remember them and we smoke in their honor and we mention their names often and we, we, we recite the stories and the things that they taught us. And, um, that's what it is being a, uh, an OG, an old timer, old school industry, an old school cult, uh, culture type person, you know, it was like, like you said, you know, sure. There's plenty of people that came before us. We didn't invent the cannabis culture, but boy, was it rocking when we, when we were early and high times was still an icon of America and every stoner in the world bought it or, or stole it off the news rack. <laughs> Back when the Dutch were still open-minded. Uh, right. Before they went right wing. <sighs> Holy shit. It's like, closing down the red light, trying to shut down, like making, you know, the Dutch experiment where it's like 10 coffee shops and 10 companies that will represent and produce all the flour and the hash for each of those co coffee shops. It's uh, they want to lose the value, which is the importation. Right. And I get it. They want that, that coin for themselves, but if they were smart, they would go to those countries and say, look, we, pretty much fucked your country over uh, for a long time, especially back in the day, because the Dutch were the, the original sailors. They taught the Russians how to sail, and Russia damn near took over the world. So like the Dutch, they were out there sailing before many. And they, um, yeah, they, they, they could go to these countries and make deals where if they legalized it, you could import it into, it would just be a special thing when you don't try to control it and you still in my opinion the perfect world will be when cannabis is legal everywhere but i can get lebanese hash or california og kush or you know whatever you, you need to be able to get it from that spot it's where not you monsanto get it lebanese hash <laughs> right exactly hey brother you know look look hash. you know a lot of people don't have a palate a lot of people can't taste the difference between a McDonald's hamburger. A lot of people don't have a palate for cannabis or hash. A lot of people don't have a palate for culture. But it's important for people to get together 
and just pay a little reverence, tell a few old stories, remember what the old times were, and pass it on to the young ones who weren't born when you and I met and smoked our first bowl of bubble hash. <laughs> totally, dude. That's what's up. I love it. I do love so, it. So, hey, man, I just want to thank you for being on. This was a total blessing. And you are a uh, you are a chieftain among chiefs in my in my in my heart. And uh, if you ever have anything of consequence or humor or of any type of entertainment value that you want to share with us again, you just call us up again and we'll do this again. That's what's up, man. I appreciate it. I really uh, enjoyed hanging and talking to you on a Sunday afternoon here. It's uh, just a beautiful day, blue sky, and just seeing your smiley face and hearing your voice was uh, indeed a pleasure. I look forward to uh, to seeing it going uh, live. Me too, man. Uplifting is what I'm talking. It's, it was definitely uplifting. So uh, with that, we're going to sign off and uh, you have yourself a great day. And uh, I would say stay green, but uh, that doesn't apply to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. Last thing I want is green hash. You can, you can tell me to stay gold. Stay gold, my brother. Well, now that was enlightening. Marcus Bubbleman Richardson is not just an expert on bubble hash and entrepreneurship, but he is genuinely an extraordinary gentleman. I want to thank you all for being here for another episode of Grow Weed at Home with Kyle Cushman. And please tune in for the next extraordinary episode of Gua! Gua!